We'd referenced him last week, but the poet T.S. Eliot says, the end is where we start from. This is true. John, the revelator, his final vision for heaven is not actually the end, even though it's at the end of our Bibles, even though it's at the end of time. It's not actually an end at all. It's, it's a new beginning. It's the beginning of eternal life from everlasting to everlasting. Uh, one writer sums up the Bible story that we've been tracing along this fall as the sin-ruined creation of Genesis now being restored in the sacrifice-renewed creation of Revelation. They're almost two sides of a book. All of this through the Son, by the Spirit, new creation, made possible by the resurrection. We talked about the cross last week, but the cross is never separated from the resurrection. This, this Jesus who was raised from the dead. We don't have a great imagination for that, and sometimes it, we take it so much for granted. I remember when we had a godly play lesson up here, and uh, one, of, one of our kids uh, said, Blah, 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 Jesus died and rose from the dead. We all know that, right? And so we take, this, we take this for granted, right? But this was a unique event in history. Not that Jesus died, but that Jesus was raised from the dead. But now it's no longer unique. Because we're promised that those who now die, quote, in Christ are united, joined to Christ, and we shall also rise with him, in him. That makes us different. That makes us not no longer joined with or bound to or slaves of sin and death. We no longer live in the shadow of fear and finitude. But now we, we experience, starting now, this new, durable, eternal life that is connected with God and starts right now. Do you see how creative of a reconfiguration this is? Like, in the story that we've been telling over and over, we've, we've had to have our expectation of who God is and how God is reworked. We've had to have all these terms redefined because we can't make the story up on our own. If we made the story up on our own, uh, creation might be a little different, you know? And, and sometimes we have this sort of nostalgia about creation it's like the nostalgia of like a war vet or a former athlete or a fisherman where every time you tell the story, it, get, it gets better on how it used to be, right? But when Kindle came a few weeks back and told the creation story, she told it in a way that emphasized that we've always been eaters. We've never been self-sustaining. We've never been supermen and superwomen who don't need anything else or anyone else, but we've always had to rely on God to provide. We've always been based in communion because we're based in this God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who is communion. We've always been meant for commensality, sitting together and eating across from each other. That's why events like yesterday afternoon are so extraordinary in our world. I was sitting next to a young lady who's studying social work in Latinx communities, and she was saying how she's growing more and more passionate about 
um, especially in those communities, people who have mental and physical health detriments because they are isolated. And, and I'm sitting across from her like, yeah, exactly. I, I know. Because of who we were made by and how we were made for communion with each other. And so we re-narrate this, uh, not, not even that the fall necessarily makes us finite and dependent, but that the fall warps and twists that. It's disturbed. We've always been eaters, but now we're, we, we have to kill for it. And so it also um, redefines and, and gives us a new imagination for what we talk about when we talk about sin and corruption. And that uh, I think many of us have, have um, conceived of this as, as just this idea that we always walk around choosing death 100% of the time, which is kind of absurd if you think about it because First off, no one thinks that they're wrong. If, if, if you thought you were wrong, you would choose something else to think so that you were right, right? So instead, I think, I think this Bible story of corruption in which we trace Adam and Eve's choices to, to, to supersede God and to, to grasp at equality with God as, as more kind of the state of things, that they're cracks in who we are, in our vocation, to gather creation's praise, to, 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 to bring to God and, and to connect others with, with God's life. It, it challenges us to conceive of sin as being enslaved by powers, having our desires that once were good and meant for God inverted and misfiring everywhere. It's kind of nothing personal, but even, our best and, even at our best and most beautiful, we're just broken. And that's okay. Because God has a plan. That's, that's when we talk about community. God has a plan to gather a people unto God's self, a community of, of people that would join other people into what God's doing. But it, it's, hard to, it's hard for us to think, if we were writing the script, these people are always meant to be a vulnerable people, right on the edge of extinction like a laughable people we talked about a few weeks ago. Fragile, tiny, undersided people. Like think refugees, not empire. God's calling a community. And then if, of course, if we wrote the story, it probably wouldn't involve a cross, but if it did, that, that it'd be hard for us to imagine this device of torture being a means of salvation. Like, the very thing that you put down revolutions by the world's standards and with the world's violence begins to start an ongoing and never-ending revolution. Like they thought they could bury Jesus, but they didn't know that they were planting a seed that would grow and grow and grow and continue to grow now. And so now this new creation burst forth from the dead. New birth, new life from a barren womb. God restores, and God restores not by wiping a slate clean and starting over. This God that Brian read from Isaiah 60 in Revelation 21 isn't like this garbage man in the sky that's going to take out the old so we can clean this place up. This God is not like a germaphobe or a scientist in a lab. It's not a military general 
with the finger on launch codes. As God plants a tree, and this tree spans across the rivers as the New Jerusalem comes down. This tree is the cross, and it's now a tree for the healing of nations. We couldn't make this stuff up. These, with these reconfigurations, we now have a vision cast for transformation. This is a vision that Isaiah 60 is, is obsessed with. Instead of being abandoned, hated, and forbidden, it says, I will make you majestic forever, a joy for all generations. And then there's this anti-upping, right? Instead of bronze, gold. Instead of iron, silver. Instead of wood, bronze. Instead of stones, iron. Everything is a little higher on the pecking order. This transformation makes things more precious, more durable, more lasting. Used to have other governors, cruel bosses, and bad motivators, but now you will have peace and righteousness. No more violence, no more devastation, no more destruction. Instead, your walls shall be your salvation and your praise. These things that will protect you will be the things where you rely on God and witness forth praise. So Revelation is really great at showing this cosmological, like the whole world as we know it transformation. Most of the time when we read Revelation, we think it's the end of the world as we know it, but really I think it's the start of the new world as we will know it. It says, the sun will no longer be your light by day, nor will the moon shine for illumination by night. The Lord will be your everlasting light. There's this um, kind of outsider folk artist, Sister Gertrude Morgan. I think there's a painting. She starts to paint this new picture of what this renewed creation would look like. Revelation 21 picks up on these themes. It says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I think all this falls into the kind of the category of weird visions that make most of us not read Revelation, right? Um, I propose that one reason that it's so hard to understand these like kaleidoscopic visions, so we don't really understand where we are or what time it is. Don't understand how Revelation's telling that kind of present future. For Revelation's picture of new creation to make any sense or for it to make sense for us, we need to understand this, Im this imagery is kind of written in an overlap. Overlapping time, over overlapping space. That sounds like not a very good explanation for you and really sci-fi-ish, overlapping time, overlapping space. This is kind of like Stranger Things living in the upside down, right? But when we start to understand this overlapping time, we can start to imagine how something can be already happening but not yet here. That's the whole picture we have here in, in this overlap of, of time, overlap of space, this both and overlap of heaven and earth that was once together and then separated, heaven kind of hovering over, trying to recapture and re-inhabit earth. We start to we actually start to hear this sort of language when Jesus shows up and starts announcing that the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of the heavens, not some place up there. We can't, um, we can't switch out heaven for space, like outer space. 
Like we'd be praying our Father who art in space, right? That's normally how we think about it, but that's not that's not really what's happening. When when the 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 Hebrew imagination and the scriptures talk about the heavens, it's something that's right here, it's right at hand. Reach out your arm and touch it. Breathe it in. It's around us. We start to feel this for ourselves when we enter into a relationship with God and know ourselves as completely forgiven saints, even if we don't look very different or don't feel very different. So many of us have, have grown up with the Christianity of our childhood where we expect that we make a decision for faith or we begin to follow Christ and there's going to be this flip switched. And to some extent, maybe that might happen. God will, will give you an infusion of grace and motivation to live differently. But also, you're still here. You still have the same relationships. You still are in the same place. And in a lot of ways, it can be discouraging that nothing else changes. This revelation vision invites us to have these kind of bifocals to see everything the same but everything different. This is the new creation breaking in in our midst. In Revelation, we get a glimpse of this cosmic victory won for us by the Lamb who was slain. John's vision is as sure as if it has already happened. That we look around in every day in all these places and people, and, and yet these things are not even close to the sort of peace and justice and purity of God's will. How is this possible that the... That these things can be assured for us, but there's this kind of lag or disconnect. Revelation shows us this overlap of heaven and earth. It's a state that creation started, but sin and death has driven apart, and now it's being reconciled in Christ. That's why in Christian art and iconography, you, you get this mandorla, this almond shape, because it's always this overlap, this place where, where Christ inhabits in the middle and, and in between, in this liminal intersection. And this is where we're called. This is where we live. This is where we hang out. This is where we live and move and have our being in God. So we're called in Christ here to witness to this space, to witness that God is, is fulfilling our hopes and increasing this space, furthering this overlap. To witness to the places where there are thin spaces, that's what the uh, Celtic Christianity calls this, thin spaces where heaven peeks through or sounds a little louder in the background, that heaven that has been the white noise in the background that we no longer hear, but w we get our ears tuned or sometimes it gets turned up a little higher and we hear it and we feel it and we know that God is at work. We're to witness that. We don't bring that. We, we witness to it. We amplify it. We, we try to grab onto it and explain it for ourselves and then relay it to others. That God is invading and reclaiming this world for God's kingdom. This is why we pray that God might make it on earth as it is in heaven. This is really quite a different way to think about the world that I think really inspires quite a different way to live in the world. To live in expectation. To live, like to think that we'll see and be a part of these little flashes of heaven on earth. Because heaven is barely out of the range of our senses. Think about that, like 
how the other 99% of light that we don't see or the other 90% of our brains that we don't use or the thousands of living organisms in the head of a pan or like in a scoop of composted dirt, like there is always more happening than we know. And, and I think that's a little bit of what Revelation is doing for us, is giving us a vision for all these things that are in play at all times. Giving this flower, flowery, artistic, poetic language for these battles that are happening right in our midst, right in our bodies. New creation is occurring in the present, but it also waits. The whole creation has been groaning as in pains of labor right up to the present time. This is how Paul talks about it in Romans. The kingdom of heaven is at hand already, but certainly not quite all the way there yet. This is, this. I also think when we talk about new creation, it kind of in this way, it reconfigures our expectations for the future and our present in terms of work and rest. Work and rest. That's why we we do a lot of work now, but we also struggle to find rest. And I think most of our visions of heaven or the by and by is this time that'll just be restful. But I, I think instead, because all of this is occupying real space and real things, that, that heaven isn't just fill in the blank, your most leisurely activity. It's not just golf. It's not just naps. It's not just playing with puppies. Like heaven is going to be work. Work flowing out of rest. Work to look more and more like Christ now and then work to be in Christ, to be part of the chorus and also to, to keep up and be a part of the ecosystem of this new city coming down. So now we work to make earth more and more like heaven, knowing that it's not in our work, but we're working with God. And we fully will come more and more to understand what God's vision for this is, the, the way that God has paved and is paving this to happen in Christ's life, death, and resurrection and ascension in which he's powerful even now. Because the scope of the new creation is no less, no, small, no smaller, no more creative than the scope of the original creation. Think about that. Think about all the things you love now as being a pale version of what they'll be or what they could be. That the same God that breathed life into clay to make Adam offers to breathe new life into each and every one of us in imperishable bodies. The same creative God that ordered the void and spoke everything we know into being mountain, sea, wonder upon wonder, re-energizes a groaning creation and charges it with the grandeur of God. That's new creation. So we live in this overlap. We participate in it. It takes a lot of discernment from us to know which of these things are worth our time and our attention and our loves, right? The things that are passing away and the things that will be renewed that are being renewed. So we discern together how to, how to bring things in the overlap, what things are already in that overlap. We enjoy God's grace, all the while trying not to waste our time on things that we shouldn't love as much as we do and that we hold on too tightly to. We live in kind of this discomfort and this tension. John's vision teaches that things actually will be a little different. Like there's going to be some things that will be left out. 
It says there's not even going to be a sun and a moon. Can you imagine a world without the sun and the moon? We also know that there's not going to be a temple in which might not be as big of a deal for us, but for Jews, no temple is a big deal. <laughs> that means no communion with God. There's not going to be a sea. In, in an ancient Near Eastern imagination, the sea is where all the bad things happen. Sea monsters at the edge of the maps is, is how we explain why our loved ones go far away and don't come back. And there's not going to be any of that. All these false things won't be perpetuated, and there's good reasons. The temple is no longer necessary because all renewed space will be sacred. How about that? You don't have to go somewhere special because God is with us. God is with us. Imagine that, like, the whole earth will be filled with God's glory, God's presence. Like, there's not going to be a sun and a moon because short of some sort of cataclysm, um, the sky is not really falling, but it's because God will be our light. All these little flashlights, that's that's kind of the picture, that the sun, this massive ball of that burning gas which provides all the energy for the whole universe is a flashlight compared to what God is doing when God shows up. Our, God will be our source. God will be our knowledge. God will be the backlight for everything we see and experience. There won't be a sea. There won't be any chaos or fear or a gulf or distance between us and God or us and each other or us and creation. The lake of fire will eat up everything that is causing separations from God. The new heaven and the new earth will be so synced up, so overlapped. There won't be any more falsities. There won't be anything else falling outside of that overlap anymore. All the impurities will be consumed and left behind. The dross will be pulled out of the gold. There's no room for cowardice or unbelief once the veil has been pulled back. There, those, those used to worshiping idols or killing will be awkward and out of place in a land of true worship with no more death and violence. The vision says, I saw a holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. I think this is the best picture Scripture gives us for heaven. A holy city, the new city of David, where God's temple was, where God's presence is. I want to quote Eugene Peterson, who's one of my heroes, and he passed away earlier this week at the age of 85. Quote him at length as he describes this. If you're scared of Revelation, read Eugene Peterson's book, Reverse Thunder. It's, it's beautiful and interesting and will make you want to read more and learn more. Eugene Peterson says, cities are noisy with self-assertion, forgetful and defiant of God, battering and abusive to persons. Heaven surely should get us away, far away from that as possible. Haven't we had enough cities on earth? Don't we deserve uh, what we long for? Many people want to go to heaven the way they want to go to Florida. They want to think the weather will be an improvement and the people will be decent. But the biblical heaven is not a nice environment far removed from the stress of hard city life. It is an invasion 
of the city, by the city, capital C. We enter heaven not by escaping what we don't like, but by the sanctification of the place in which God has placed us. We enter heaven not by escaping what we don't like, but by the sanctification of the place. Sanctification means making holy, God inhabiting the place in which God has placed us. I'm going to really embarrass, embarrass my parents, Nancy and Ned, who, who are here, because I couldn't help but think about them with this. Um, not that heaven is retirement and not that uh, retirement is death or anything, but most of the time when people retire, they move to Florida and they relax and they like walk on the beach and live in a condo. My parents lived in a condo in Florida and then they retired and they moved up to Durham <laughs> in a place much closer to other people. And, and they do much more work now with our kids, but also in the community, in this church community, in the neighborhood. And it's a brilliant picture, I think, of this, uh, of this expectation for what's next. And, and, and I draw a lot of encouragement from that, and, and from many of you. Like, this is, this is not really a unique example, but specifically talking about living in Florida and, and hoping for nice weather. Um, they, they, I assure you, they don't curse much, but they curse when it rains, cold, freezing, winter rain and snows here, but they're so involved and so engaged in the sanctification of the place that God has placed them, and it's inspiring. So also in that picture of the New Jerusalem coming down, just a quick note on the directionality of that. Note that this city is coming down. Most of our imaginations have been formed with like a thin reading of one part of First Thessalonians, which says that we're going to go up somewhere, that, that we're going to fly away. We, we sing in songs. But notice that even in, in that verse in First Thessalonians, it says the Lord himself will come down. Like this is, the, this is an instance of the downward mobility of God. That is drastically different from our up theologies that, that try to lift our feet off the ground and not make us responsible for the sanctification of the place that God's put us. That, that these theologies make our bodies irrelevant or loathsome. They make the environment a victim of our selfish carelessness. If one day it will be on earth as it is in heaven or an invasion of the city by the city, why wouldn't we, why wouldn't we even care why wouldn't we even in our care and stability and service to real people and place be getting ready for eternity? The now is part of that eternity. Revelation says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or crying or pain or mourning for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. God will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. We're coming up at this time of year. We're coming up to Advent, and this is Advent language. The end of our Isaiah passage says, the Lord will, will make haste to come. The language that God is gracefully making a way for us to be in God's presence. We live between these two advents. Christ 
coming at its birth and is coming again. And both require us to make room for Jesus in our hearts and lives and to organize our lives around the surprise that God might show up at odd times. That might show up right when we least expect him. Might show up right when we least want him to show up. When we have the upper hand or when we've lost our cool. They require us to make room for God. This is also covenantal language. God will be our God and we'll be God's people. This is like straight from the mouth of characters like Ruth, who foreshadowed this sort of steady love, steadfast faithfulness. That's part and parcel of who God is and how God is. This is the language of vulnerability a wounded healer. Through his rule and reign, he'll tenderly attend to all the hurt and scars in the sinful world. Imagine a world where each of those tears and scars finds healing. Where, like Christ's resurrected body, when he appeared to his disciples, we might be recognized in eternity for our scars, but we won't be suffering anymore. By Christ's stripes, We've been healed, and we've been called to receive this healing now and forever and offer this healing now and forever. Recently, um, Father Oscar Romero was made a saint by the Catholic Church. I think he captures this well in this, in this comment. There are many things that can only be seen through the eyes that have cried. Oscar Romero was martyred while... Uh, giving a homily about hope and about work now. And right as he offered up a prayer for communion, was stabbed in, in his parish and died. If the cross showed us what God's strength and weakness looks like in 3D in the person of Christ, the resurrection puts on display the most incredible thing we could imagine seen through crying eyes with wiped away tears. We have tear tracks, but we're no longer crying anymore. We can see this, though. We can see this new paradigm for what it means to be human. Namely, that our bodies will someday die, but that death is, the fact that death is final is completely called into question. You see, the whole book of Acts is kind of trying to make sense of this in the early church. There's someone walking around in real time and space named Jesus who tasted death, whose heart stopped beating and whose life ceased, but he's now alive and well, and he beat death by death. Just about anything is possible. That's why his followers are doing, quote, greater things than he even did, because Jesus is still alive and we live in that life. Just about anything can be redeemed if sin and death have been beaten. This is the cornerstone of our faith. Christ's resurrection flung open the doors for our resurrection, our eternal life, our perfected bodies, our union with the Lord. Paul writes to the Corinthian church, If the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins then those who have also died in Christ have perished. If for this life we have hoped in Christ, we of all people are to be pitied. 
Jesus didn't rise, if the Spirit didn't raise Jesus from the dead, all of this falls apart for us. That's how important it is. This new creation coming now because Jesus has been raised from the dead and us staking everything in it. And if this old world passing away, this new coming looks like conversion and transformation. We see it in Isaiah's vision. We have this new imagination for how these things might happen. Like swords being beaten into plowshares, spears into pruning hooks. Things will be what they always could have been. I think that's the beautiful thing about the, the imagery in Isaiah. is like the, the metal that we made weapons with to be violent towards each other and to protect always could have been implements for farming and making life and su sustaining. They always could have been that, and now they're being bent back into what they always could have been. Isn't that an amazing thing when we look around at our neighbors and we see people who are, who are frustrated or who have been malformed in, in what they love or how they express themselves, and you can look at them not with fear, not with anger, but you, you, with hope and begin to have an imagination for how we might be, how they might be, like reformed, remade into something far more hopeful and useful and, and original. Like, if this is the case, our cracked images of God will, will be remade into perfect pictures of Christ. Famously, this is one of the things that they might have said it, they might not have said it, but it's still great, so we say that someone famous said something a long time ago. Um, so famously, maybe not truthfully, but famously, Martin Luther, the great reformer, was asked what he would do if he knew the world would end tomorrow. And he replied, oh, I'd plant a tree, obviously, right? This echoes a Jewish saying that if you have a sapling in your hand and they tell you the Messiah has arrived, first plant the sapling and then go greet the Messiah, right? The point for both is that like even a little sapling tree, and we have this little sapling tree out back by the parking lot that we planted, it's a little baby sawtooth oak that we planted about four years ago because we wanted this kind of interactive picture of, of growth and this trunk thickening and these rings happening inside that we can't see but we trust are happening and we can kind of see it growing. The point is that even this little sapling tree will have time to grow when Christ returns. Actually, all the time in the world to flower and flourish and be transformed into something like some kind of eternal tree that would be even better than we could hope or imagine now. And planting it right now is not like a feeble gesture, but it's a powerful sign of faith and hope. It's a powerful sign that God's future overlaps with our now and continues forever. All these little things that we do for hope, healing, and hospitality in Christ are being brought into God's massive, powerful, durable plan. So I want to close, again, with the, with the message version, paraphrased by Eugene Peterson, of Paul's words from 2 Corinthians 5. Uh, hear these words. What we see is that anyone united with the Messiah gets a fresh start is created new. The old life is gone. 
a new life burgeons. Look at it. All this comes from the God who settled the relationship between us and him and then called us to settle our relationships with each other. God put the world square with himself through the Messiah, giving the world a fresh start by offering forgiveness of sins. God has given us the task of telling everyone what he is doing. We're Christ's representatives. God uses us to persuade men and women to drop their differences and enter into God's work of making things right between them. We're speaking for Christ himself now. Become friends with God. He's already a friend with you. you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this hopeful work, this new creation that invades our space and our time and in our lives. Thank you that in Christ you have made friends with us. Help us grow in that friendship, in the security of it, in the grace of it, in the challenge of it, in the intimacy of it. Help us introduce anyone we meet um, to our friend, uh, that they might also become friends with you. Thanks for all the the things that inspire us and, and peek through and show us these thin places where you're already at work for beauty, for art, for uh, sacrifice, for friendships, for community, for eating together, for neighbors. Keep giving us a vision for this work. Renew us in this work and, and encourage us. And draw us nearer to you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.